0: Alright, good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This morning, we're going to start with verse 12. just want to read to the end of the chapter. This is John speaking. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these sobering words we have read this morning. Truly, Lord, a fearful and a ghastly picture. And Lord, may we be reminded this morning of the judgment that inevitably waits. Lord, the payday that is coming. And for those of us who have been born again, may we find great peace and may your grace in our lives be magnified evermore. For but for the blood of Jesus Christ, There are we, before the judgment, naked, judged according to our works. But praise God, Jesus the Christ fulfilled the law and was a perfect sacrifice. And Lord, just as the censer that Moses and Aaron quickly offered before the Lord stayed the plague amongst Israel, so the blood of Christ offered up to you without spot and blemish stays this destruction, this judgment. In the lives of you, those who will repent and put their faith in Messiah. So Lord, may we be compelled this morning as we contemplate this fearful future judgment to be a bold witness for you, to speak words of life in dark days. And Lord, if there be any in here today who is lost, who's trusting in their church attendance and their own works to make them right with God, who has not placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, may they be converted this day at the preaching of hell, fire, and brimstone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, my friends, last week we covered verse 11. We're looking at the final judgment. This is not some general judgment. The Scriptures know nothing of some general judgment that's out there in the future somewhere that we can't really understand and so we're not going to talk about it or preach about it. And if there's a Scripture that deals with prophecy or the millennium, we're just going to throw it all in there. General judgment. The Scriptures know nothing of a general judgment. There was the judgment of our sins upon the cross. There's the believer's self-judgment. If we will judge ourselves in our walk with Christ, we won't be judged. There's the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. All believers will stand before that and have their works judged for reward. In heaven, there's the judgment of Israel for her centuries of rebellion during the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, that tribulation. There's the judgment of the Gentile nations who persecute God's people, the Jews, during that time of tribulation, who align themselves with Antichrist at the throne of Messiah in Matthew 25. There's the judgment of angels in which we will participate according to the scriptures. And then there is that last great judgment, the judgment of the dead, all the dead, small and great, who will stand before God. We saw last week how at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan in his attempt to raise up a rebellious army fails miserably. He is cast into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and the first false prophet, And the first fruits of that second resurrection unto shame and everlasting contempt. And then God pulls back the veil of eternity. The heavens and the earth which are now are suddenly dissolved. And they melt with fervent heat. What Peter talked about. Suddenly. And then bam. There's a great white throne. And the dead. Suddenly. One moment in hell. All the way back to Cain. One moment in hell. And then suddenly. Suddenly. Before a throne. So, we talked about the place of this great judgment, the great white throne, the throne of final authority. Guys, at the end of the day, what matters most is authority and who possesses it. Is the authority with God or is it with something else? That's what you're going to ultimately answer for. Who is the final authority? And my friends, God is the final authority. And the instrument whereby He judges, we're going to see today, is His Word. I stand before you and I confess openly and without apology that this book, the Bible, the Holy Bible, preserved for me in a language I can understand, is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. We confess that. We deny that there are Christians who love Jesus but don't believe the Bible. Those are fakers. Those are liars. A Christian believes God's Word. And every man will be judged by that final authority at the throne of final authority. You see, authority's been the issue all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Who's the authority? Satan came along, the serpent, and he questioned the authority. And then Eve questioned the authority. And then Adam questioned the authority. Yea, God hath said. Okay, yeah, God hath said that if you eat this fruit, you'll die. But what He really meant, or a better translation of the original Hebrew would read, if you eat it, you'll die in the sense that, not real death, not literally death, but you'll be like God and no good for me you see, the yea, God hath said society that was founded 4,000 years ago still exists today. And sadly, my friends, it, oh, it overran the mainline denominations long ago, but it has overrun modern day evangelicalism. And it has overrun our churches and our universities that are supposed to be turning out champions for Christ. The yea, God hath said society is still around. Founded by the serpent. Its first president was Adam. And his co-pastor was Eve. And it's still around today. But it's at this throne that all the dead who have questioned the authority of God at some point in their lives, who have rejected His authority, will be judged. The place is the great white throne. Today we're going to look at the basis of this judgment. And we're going to look at the results of that judgment. We've seen the place. It's a sobering scene. In fact, I remember my first visual encounter with this scene. It's the original Chick tract. Who knows what the original Chick tract was? Very famous. This was your life. And the first time I ever saw this Chick tract, it was shown to me by my own grandfather who used to carry these around back in the day and share his faith wherever he went. You know, I was privileged to grow up or I had a grandpa who just shared the gospel. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't a missionary. He was a law enforcement officer, and he was an upstanding citizen. And sharing the gospel was just what he did when he went about his business because he was a Christian. And he showed me one of those tracts when I was a kid. And the visualization in that tract is very simple, hand-drawn, but it is the great white throne, that scene. And in that scene, men stand before God naked, and all their works are revealed. That's a great tract, by the way, that survived the test of time and has been used by God. Gospel tracts have always worked. The early Christians used gospel tracts, The persecuted Christians who sowed the seeds of Reformation long before Luther or Calvin were ever born used gospel tracts. Gospel tracts work. I don't care what modern evangelicals say. I don't care what Jerry Falwell Jr. says or Albert Moeller or any of these other guys that everybody just goes gaga over. Gospel tracts work. And one of the best ones I've ever seen depicts this scene right here. But here we're going to look at the basis of this judgment. Verses 12 and 13. John sees the dead standing before God. The dead. I saw the dead. Small and great. Guys, these are not those who had part in the first resurrection. If you remember back in verse 6 of this same chapter. It is said, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Guys, that's the redeemed. That's those that are resurrected in Messiah. Those that are resurrected at His coming for the church. The dead in Christ shall rise. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's not who's standing before God here. Those who had part in the first resurrection, the redeemed, they're ministering to the one that sits upon the throne. Remember Daniel said he saw thousands and thousands ministering unto the ancient of days and yet 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The 10,000 times 10,000 is the dead, both small and great. All the dead. From Cain down to your unsaved relative that you buried last year. All the dead. From Nimrod, that wicked first king of Babylon. All the way down to Creepy Joe when he's dead and gone by the odds of March. Mark my words. You're probably looking at your next president and he'll be dead by the odds of March. And that harpy in a pantsuit will be running this country. And if you think a woman leader of a government is God's blessing or is good, you need to go read the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah, God told Israel, You are under judgment for your wickedness and therefore children are your oppressors and women rule over you that makes me a misogynist, whatever that means, so be it. I stand with the book. I don't stand with Black Lives Matter. I don't stand with Antifa. I don't stand with the spirit of the age. I won't kneel for it. I won't raise my fist. But I will stand in awe of the author of the book. And the author of the book says that when children are the oppressors of a society... And when women rule over a society, that is judgment from God. It's a judgment. Hey, I didn't write it. So we already live in a society where these things are before us. We already live there. We are a society under God's judgment. But one day, all the dead, from Nimrod all the way down to Creepy Joe, are going to stand before the throne. From Pharaoh... To Sennacherib, to Nabopolassar, to Darius, to Alexander the Great, Caesar, Pilate, Caiaphas, Nero, almost, not almost, every single Pope of Rome, every single one. Joseph Smith, the liar, Buddha, Muhammad, King Henry VIII, the adulterer, Hitler, FDR, JFK, Harvey Milk. His buddy Jim Jones. Charles Manson. The entire Democrat Party that has embraced the strategy of Charles Manson. Go learn what that means. Elijah Cummings and John Lewis. They'll be standing there on that day. George Floyd. He'll be standing there. All the dead. From Cain all the way down to your neighbor. And even... Donald Trump, if he's not converted. Even him. Doesn't matter how many pro-life events he speaks at. Doesn't matter how many MAGA tweets. Doesn't matter how many times he says in America we worship God. None of that matters. Except he be converted, there he'll stand. Small and great. You see, small and great means rich and poor. The haves and the have-nots. You see, American communist churchianity, the communism that's come into evangelicalism, the garbage that's being touted by the Southern Baptist leaders today, would have you believe that rich equals bad and that poor equals good. That the haves are evil and the have-nots are noble. Nothing could be farther from the truth, my friends. That is not a biblical worldview. That is not a biblical picture of man. The Bible does not teach that the rich are bad and that the poor are good. What it teaches is that all men, from the the richest man down to the poorest bum, will be judged for their works. You see, in the Bible, there were rich men. It was a rich man that took Jesus Christ down off the cross and gave our Lord His own tomb to fulfill prophecy. It was a rich man that at the preaching of Christ went and made everything right he had ever done in terms of scamming other people, and then had the Lord come into his home. In the Scriptures, I see 9 out of 10 poor, unfortunate lepers who were so wicked and ungrateful And didn't even return to thank the Lord Jesus for healing them. There was a wicked poor servant. Who was forgiven an incredibly large debt. By a rich man. And then went out and wouldn't forgive the pennies. That one slightly poorer than himself owed him. So don't believe the lie that rich are evil and poor are bad. It's not like that. Men are wicked. And it doesn't matter how much... Money you have. Just as many wicked bums before this throne as there will be wicked moguls and playboys, both small and great. There's a psalm that I think speaks to this. It was written by the sons of Korah. There's 11 psalms that have a subscript in the collection of psalms that are ascribed to the sons of Korah. If you remember, Korah led the rebels in the desert against Moses and Aaron. It was Korah that got a band of men together, 250, to overthrow, to question, and to overthrow Moses' leadership. You know, I often run into folks, Jewish folks, and my love for Israel and my desire to share the gospel with the Jew first, and also with the Gentile, that will say that hell is a New Testament doctrine. That hell is not in the Old Testament. My friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. Hell is right there in Numbers 16. And when the ground opens up and swallows up Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all that pertains unto them, these people didn't die. They went straight to hell. See, God did something that had never been done before. He opened up the earth and men alive went straight down into the pit. Sheol, which is hell. Hell's right there in the Torah. But Korah the rebel. We know the story Jude refers to the way of Cain, the error of Balaam and the gainsaying or the the speech, the speech that you see in the news media. That's what that's what the gainsaying of Korah is, that just cynical Everything's wrong with everything, and I know better than you. That is what Jude warns against in the churches. And friends, that's all over the place today. But in Numbers 16, Korah and the the, the crowd that followed him was swallowed up by hell. And there is an interesting verse, though, later in Numbers, in some of the genealogies, references made back to this event with these rebels. And we're told and reminded about the earth opening her mouth and swallowing them up together with Korah when that company died. This is in Numbers 26, verse 10. What time the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Verse 11, notwithstanding... The children of Korah died not. Korah had descendants. His children didn't perish that day. And they would go on to be gatekeepers and musicians in the tabernacle and in the temple in the days of Solomon. And so it was the descendants of this wicked rebel that wrote at least 11 of the Psalms. That lesson right there tells us that God can redeem anything. That it doesn't matter what you were born into. It doesn't matter who your fathers were or what they did. That's not an excuse for you. And it's also hope for you. God can redeem men out of the most wicked, evil families imaginable. And can use them to stand in the gate and praise Him. That is an amazing testimony of God's grace. But the Psalm 49 was written by the sons of Korah. Gatekeepers, musicians in the temple... And it's an interesting psalm and it's worth reading for us who are discouraged in these dark times. And we see evil prospering amongst the rich and the poor everywhere. But my friends, this psalm reminds us, don't worry, payday is a coming. It's coming and not just for the rich. For the poor is where? Well, not just for the great, but for the small. Hear this, Psalm 49, all you people, give ear, all you inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. I like how the psalmist gets right to the point, doesn't beat around the bush like the modern day politician and preacher, right to the point. My mouth shall speak of wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my hills shall compass me about? Guys, why should we fear in the days of evil? These are days of evil. Days of evil where people are addicted to all the fear porn That's on the television screen. That's what it is fear porn. If you're scared to leave your house without putting on a mask, if you're like the mother who was in the store a couple days ago when my parents were shopping somewhere in Ohio and turned to her husband or whoever was with her and said, Quick, cover the baby, cover the baby, non mask wearers, non mask wearers. If you're like that, you're a porn addict. You're addicted to fear pornography. And there's many like that in the churches, my friends. There are many homes across America that six or eight months ago would have gladly opened their homes to traveling preachers like myself and Eric come next week. But now those doors are locked tight and we would not be welcome. In fact, I wouldn't even ask. Many I know like that. Porn addicts. They're addicted to fear porn. But the Bible says, why should we fear in the days of evil? When iniquity is all around. Then verse 6, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. Guys, a man's soul is pricey. It's pricey and there's nothing you can do to give a ransom for it. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how much influence you have, you can't purchase a man's soul. It's pricey. That could only be purchased by the spotless Lamb of God. You know, the wicked think, verse 9, that he should live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish. And leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. And their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Generation after generation after generation. Somehow thinks they'll be different than the generation before. My name will continue. I'll live forever. I'll be able to do what none of them could. And yet the rich and the poor die and perish. This, nevertheless, verse 12, man being in honor abideth not, both rich and poor. He is like the beast that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. In other words, nobody learns. Their folly is manifest, and yet their posterity follow the same route. Nobody learns. You know, there have been plenty of funerals of politicians that were used for political purposes that nobody talks about anymore. Ted Kennedy, the murderer, the liar, he's dead and gone. Oh, it was a big deal when he died and the funeral was a great means to spew out all of this modern progressivism, but nobody even mentions his name anymore. Nobody cares about him. But yet they go, and though he is nothing... They continue to think somehow they're different. Think about this. How many times do you hear George Floyd's name mentioned anymore? How quickly? Now it's all about Jacob Blake. Nobody cares about old George anymore who's been drug free for three months, by the way. Nobody cares about him. We've moved on to something else. Men never learn. They never learn. You know, if God didn't care about you, if God didn't care about your soul... Nobody would. Don't make any mistake. If God, the Creator of heaven and earth, didn't value your soul, no one would. Even those that die amongst friends and families who love them, give it a year. A year goes by. Maybe two. How many times do those people even mention your name anymore? Ten years go by. And then you're forgotten. I don't care who you are. Even the richest men are forgotten. If God didn't care about you, Jesus didn't care about you, nobody would. But men don't learn. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, verse 14. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for He shall receive me. Guys, the dead, small and great, will stand before the throne, rich and poor. Just like the beast of the earth, they'll perish and stand before the throne. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. And He can do that because of what Messiah has done. He was crucified. He was buried according to the Scriptures. And He rose up from the grave the third day. Therefore, God commands you to repent and believe upon Him. Verse 16, this is to you guys. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lived he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. And the context, guys, is not just the rich. It's the rich and the poor that understand not are like the beasts that perish. What is a man that understands not? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord, I'm sorry, is the beginning of wisdom, uh, uh, Proverbs nine and ten, And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Those that understand not have no understanding of the holy. They don't understand their sin in the presence of a holy God. They don't understand their need for a Messiah. It's funny to me how the Psalms actually flow. Here we have this overwhelming declaration. Don't worry, payday is coming. Don't worry, payday is coming. A lot of times we are in Zoom mode when we read the Psalms. You know, the 2 times Zoom mode on your little iPhone. We need to back out to wide-angle mode. If you've got that iPhone 11, that .5 mode, we need to back Zoom out sometimes with the Psalms. And it's amazing how they flow. Because often the questions posed in one are answered loudly in the very next one. Or explained. You move on to Psalm 50. We see the mighty God. The God of gods. We see that the purpose of the tribulation. Is to judge his people Israel. And yet before that. He's going to gather his saints. Together with him. That have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. That's the rapture of the church. And then we have the heavens. That declare his righteousness. The seal and the trumpet judgments of revelation. We go down and we see that God doesn't accept the false religious system of the Jew during the tribulation, that false temple, and all that other religious stuff. And we see that God is going to judge those who have no understanding, the understanding that's there in Psalm 50. And we make our way all the way down to the end of Psalm 50. And it says, Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. See, God shows us the coming judgment in Psalm 50. Some people claim that the rapture is not in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament doctrine. No, no, no way. The rapture's all over the Old Testament. People just haven't paid enough attention to see it. It's right there in Psalm 50. The tribulation's right there in Psalm 50. All of it prophesied. And then we learn that those who order their conversation aright will see salvation in the days of judgment. What does it mean to order your conversation aright? What does that mean? Well, guys, the answer is right there in the next psalm, Psalm 51. Do you know Psalm 51? That's a a conversation ordered a right before God. Not look at me, look at what I've done. I've got all these works, but have mercy upon me, O God. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is before me. That's a man that orders his conversation a right before God. He humbles himself like David when confronted by the truth and he repents and he's made right. By the sacrifice of Messiah. It's amazing to me how the Psalms pose a question or declare something and then go and define it immediately thereafter. A man who orders his conversation aright will see the salvation of God. What does that conversation look like? Go right there to the next Psalm where a man actually takes ownership for his sin. Something that's so rare in the churches today you remember when Nathan the prophet came to David sitting on his throne? David, a rich man, a powerful man, told the story of the little lamb and David got so angry. Who is this man? He must be judged. We must punish him. And Nathan pointed his finger and said, Thou art the man. What did David do? What did David do? Immediately he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He ordered his conversation aright. There were consequences for that because David had given occasion for men to blaspheme the Lord. Jerry Falwell Jr. has given great occasion to men to blaspheme the Lord, and there will be consequences. but I pray he quits making excuses. He didn't react like David did. You know, we often think about righteous people standing in rallies and holding up Trump signs and MAGA and getting involved in all the politics. No, what a righteous man ought to be doing is pointing his finger in the face of the president and saying, you are the man. That's what this nation needs is prophets, not protesters, not rally goers. But David ordered his conversation aright, and that's how you escape this throne, my friends. You humble yourself before the Lord and quit making excuses for your sins. I don't mean to get off on a tangent. The dead, small and great. We see that picture there in Psalm 49. We see how to, what, what, what it's going to look like in detail in Psalm 50 with the judgment of the end of the age. And then we see in Psalm 51 how to escape it. But John, back to what John says. He said, I saw the dead, small and great. The haves and the have-nots. There's evil amongst us all. And it, we're told they stand before God. My friends, Hebrews 9.27 is very clear. It is appointed. It was ordained. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. There is a judgment coming. Solomon said... Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Jesus says this is the commandment of God that you believe on Him whom God hath sent. Why? Because God's going to bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. In Amos chapter 4, God warns the people of Israel under the reign of Jeroboam II who did some good things to make Israel great again. You see a lot of parallels between the kingdom of Jeroboam II and the northern kingdom and Trump's MAGA America. A lot of similarities. And then you see God warning the people, sending judgment after judgment. Storms, sicknesses, pestilence, crops, terrorism. And five times God says through His prophet. Yet, you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Five times. And then God says, therefore, prepare to meet thy God. Since you won't turn unto me, prepare, O Israel, to meet thy God. And who is the God that the wicked are going to meet one day? tells us in the next verse of Amos chapter 4 verse 13 one of my favorite verses in scripture for lo he that formeth the mountains that's the one you're going to stand before that declareth that createth the wind that declareth unto man what is his thought that maketh the morning darkness that treadeth upon the high places of the earth the lord the god of hosts is his name you see guys we're all going to meet one way or another we're going to meet god we're going to meet him at his coming for his church and before the judgment seat of Christ, or we're going to meet him at the great white throne. Or if you're still alive at the end of the tribulation, small chance of that, you're going to meet him when the sky is split. One of these days, you're going to meet God. Something I like to tell people when I offer them a gospel tract is Look, guys, I don't know if you care much about the things of God, but we're all going to meet him one day. That's a great line. We're all going to meet God one day. Are you ready? One way or another, there's a meeting. The dead, small and great, will stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Guys, the books are opened alongside the book of life. What's the basis of this judgment at the great white throne? It is what is written in the books. What is written? You know, we've talked about those three powerful words. There's three of the most powerful words you could ever utter from your mouth were modeled for us by Jesus in the desert when tempted by Satan. It is written. When they tell you what you should believe or what it really says or that you need to this or that or this or that, the best response, it is written. And then to know your Bible. But what is written in the books according to their works. Guys, when the Bible says something once, that's all we need. But when the Bible repeats itself to make sure you get it, we better pay attention. Twice we're told in the Scriptures, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Not once, but twice. I hope you get it. Six times in Revelation 20 we're told, That Christ will reign for a thousand years. Six times. I hope you get it. If a thousand doesn't mean thousand, then whosoever don't mean whosoever. Twice we're told in this passage that the dead will be judged according to their works. I hope you get it. The purpose is this judgment. Hear me. The purpose of this judgment is not whether or not someone is entitled to eternal life. The purpose of this final judgment is not whether or not someone received Jesus into their heart or prayed a sinner's prayer. That's not the purpose of this judgment. This judgment's purpose is to condemn men according to their works. The purpose of this judgment is punishment. Degrees of punishment. God sits on the great white throne not to say, well, this guy prayed a sinner's prayer, that guy didn't. God sits on the great white throne to punish sin and evil. Guys, God cannot forgive sin without punishing it. This idea, this cliche in modern day evangelicalism that wants to tell us God just forgives sin. Well, that's true. But God can't forgive it without punishing it. If He could, then Jesus didn't have to die. If God can just forgive it, why did Jesus die? If your church attendance and your good works and your mask wearing can make you right with God, why did Jesus die? God can't forgive sins without punishing it. And God punished our sins on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, the innocent sacrifice. Therefore, Your sins can either be punished on Jesus and therefore you escape this judgment or they'll be judged at the great white throne for the purpose of punishment. Your sins will either be punished on the cross by your repentance and faith or they'll be judged at the throne of final authority. Guys, everything is recorded. Everything. Solomon says well, every secret thing. Whether it be good or whether it be evil. Ecclesiastes 12. Jesus said every idle word will be remembered. That's sobering. That was sobering to me as I studied. I thought about all the idle words, all the stupid things I've said over the years. All the times when as a righteous man, as a wise man according to the Proverbs, I should have kept my mouth shut. Instead, I opened it. And then I thought, how precious is that blood of Jesus that covers that? Because I'd be in big trouble. Just for what I've said in my life, I'd be damned. Because Jesus said, by your words, you'll be justified or condemned. All these people spouting all this stuff on the news and in the streets, if they only knew that every idle word, they're going to give account of it at the judgment. Not just what you've done, not what you've said, but every thought. At the end of Job's trials, after God confronts him with everything, there at the last, Job is, God says to Job, if you know everything, explain to me what you can do with the great Leviathan. That dragon, the devil. God even uses the devil to teach Job a lesson. And what conclusion does Job come to? No thought, not a single thought can be withholden from thee. We're told in Jude that there's coming a time, Enoch prophesied this, Jude recorded it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's coming a time when God is going to come with ten thousands of His saints. And He's going to judge men. And they're going to answer for all the wicked things they've said against God. All their hard speeches. Nothing will escape. Judged according to the books and the book of life. According to God's standard, not ours. According to God's standard of absolute perfection, not ours. You know, there's a cliche, another cliche in modern day evangelicalism that wants to talk about sin as missing the mark. Like a guy with an arrow and he misses slightly the bulls. Sin is just missing mark. The mark. My friends, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that sin is the transgression of God's law. It says it plainly in 1 John 3 14. Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's not missing the mark like an arrow that's slightly off the bullseye but still a good shot. It's missing God's standard and therefore you're not worthy to come into His presence. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's why James said, you can boast that you haven't committed adultery, but if you've lied, you've still transgressed God's law. One lie makes you guilty of this judgment. That's why Paul says in Romans three, nineteen and 20, it's a powerful passage, and we see it come to fruition here, Paul says, Now we know that what, so, what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, both Jews and Gentiles. He's talked about them both already. The wicked man and the moral, the virtue signaler. He, he, he shows the wicked man's deserving of judgment. Then he gets into the virtue signaler, The keyboard warrior we see today on Twitter. Then he goes to the Jew. And then he talks about the Gentile. And then he says... That the law, what's written in the law is written to all of them. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, because the law of God renders all men guilty as it will at the throne. By the deeds of the flesh, the law, there shall no flesh be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Unless we have a Messiah... We can't escape the law of God because we've all transgressed it. We all deserve to stand before God and be judged according to our works. We are helpless without a Savior. But we are only hopeless if there is no Savior. And there is a Savior. Abraham saw it long ago. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham saw it there on on the mountains of Moriah. When Isaac said, where is the wood for an offering? And Abraham said, God will provide Himself the lamb." Not a lamb for himself, like the ESV wrongly translates, but God will provide himself the lamb. He himself would be the lamb and that's confirmed there in Zechariah 12 where we're told that the people of Israel will one day look upon me, God says, whom they have pierced. God's law is perfection. God's law sees our lust as adultery. God's law renders hatred Murder. God's law looks at covetousness and calls it idolatry. You know, evangelicalism and all the nice little preachers we love to hear get it backwards. They speak of well, all sin is equal before God. So if you're a raging, whoremongering homosexual, you know, it's equal. I mean, it's, that's only as bad as a lie. All sin is equal, no big deal. No, we've got it backwards. we got it backwards. What God's law decries is that a lie is as wicked as the whoremongering homosexual. Lust is as wicked as adultery. Hatred is as wicked as murder. And not vice versa. God's law condemns us. And it's the law that judges at this throne. The dead will be judged by the book and by the books. This imagery that we see that John gives us, it's not a dream, it's reality. He has shown the future, just like Daniel. Reminds me of something Jesus said. These are powerful words too. I love to cross-reference in these messages, I've said it before. Ever since this study began, we have literally cross-referenced every single book of the Bible at least twice. At least twice. You see, when you study God's Word, the books you see are part of a book. And you can't help but study the book and let the book interpret the book. John 12 47 and 48, Jesus said, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. I'm here preaching, and if any man hears my words and doesn't believe, I came to save, not to judge. Now if you stop reading there, you can come up with some messed up thinking. But Jesus wasn't done. Don't take him out of context like they take the president out of context on the news media. Don't take him out of context. Don't cut him off. Verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word. You see, Jesus doesn't judge him because this one already has one that judges him. Hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. If you reject me, the Messiah, you've already got to judge. It's the Word I've spoken. We've talked in here about the relationship between the living Word of God and the written Word of God. It's one and the same. Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnate. So the idea that someone could love Jesus and hate the Bible is utter foolishness. It's even more foolish, believe it or not, That's even more foolish than the concept that a bandana or a buff is going to protect you from a virus. It's even more foolish than the concept of putting up a chain-link fence in your yard to keep the mosquitoes out. The idea that you can be a Christian and not believe the Bible. Mm -hmm. Foolish. You reject Messiah, you will be judged by the Word of God in the last day. What's the last day in this present Creation that Christ is talking about? Right here, Revelation 20. The Word of God will be the judge of the dead. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about a book and books at the judgment, there's only one heavenly book I know that's composed of books. It's not the Quran. It's not the sayings of Buddha scattered all over the monasteries of Asia. It's not the works of Joseph Smith, the con man. There's only one heavenly book I know composed of books, and that's His Holy Bible. It says in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Settled before it was even written. In fact, the Scripture that was settled testified the truth to Abraham before it was even written. Paul writes about that. And the Scripture preached... When I look at the Bible, guys, I've been trying to read through the entire Bible in Spanish. I completed the Old, New Testament. I'm deep into the Old Testament now in the Psalms and Isaiah. But I was reminded how there are hundreds and hundreds of names in the Scriptures. There's more time on the names of men in the Scriptures than there is on the entire account of creation. Also, there's not a single sin that men commit or can commit doesn't matter what day and time you're living in, whether you're living in the days of tents and people moving out like nomads after the flood, or whether you're living in the days of iPhones. There's not a single sin that men commit that's not either named or demonstrated principally somewhere in the Scriptures, somewhere in this book. All the works of men are contained in this book made up of books, Therein, And I believe the names of the redeemed are found in this book. You think, what the heck are you talking about? I believe the names of the redeemed. We can't see them or understand them right now, but they're there. And they'll be recognized and plain in the language of heaven. And if your name's not in the book of life, God's word, you're not coming into the kingdom. You're not going to escape the judgment. The book that so many mock or lightly esteem will be the basis of their eternal judgment. The book of life, composed of books, everything's written in the books, the Word of God, Jesus said, will be the judge. I don't understand all that, but I'm just telling you what it says. Somehow this book has our names in it if you're redeemed. Now, I've told you since we started this revelation message that I don't expect you to agree with every little point. But as I study these things, I see things and I have convictions. I'm going to tell you what I believe. And if I believe it, naturally, I think I'm right. You may disagree. That's fine. We shouldn't build build doctrine on gaps that people try to fill in. I'm just telling you what I believe based on my study. But we can't agree that when God said men are going to be judged by the books, that everything is written. At the great white throne, many are going to be shocked. The books are going to reveal at the great white throne many things that take people by surprise. Black Lives Matter will be found at the throne to be more racist than Adolf Hitler. Mark my words, more racist than the Nazis. Those lecturing you to wear a mask so that you can love your neighbor will be found more full of hate than Vlad the Impaler or Attila the Hun. Mark my words. There's a hatred in our society right now that makes the literal historical King uh, uh, Count Dracula seem like a benevolent man. There is a hate in this society. And if you know God's word, you've seen it. Antifa will be found to be... Fascist of the worst kind. Republicans at the throne will be seen and be exposed as Democrats. Pastors are going to find that they were wolves, not shepherds. Many churchgoers that stand before the throne will be found to be God-haters. The day in the book... We'll declare it. That's a sobering thought. You better flee to Messiah. It's Christ or judgment. and you don't want that judgment that exposes everything. Those secrets that are in there that, you know, some of those secrets get caught. Some of them get caught and you get exposed and you get embarrassed here. But God knows all of them. He knows them all. Do you want to stand and have that judged? I pray not. Flee to the blood. Fleet of the cross, we're told in Proverbs, Solomon says, A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from all sin. No one can say that. And no one can say it at the great white throne. No man can say that. But Christ can make your heart clean. He can give you a new heart. In Job, the young man Elihu, that kind of stepped onto the scene and interjected himself in these conflicts between Job and his friends. Elihu was a young man that needed to be instructed more perfectly about God. Elihu made the mistake that Islam has made. God can't be known. That's the mistake Elihu made. That we can't know God. You see, we can know God because He's revealed Himself to us. But Elihu made that mistake, but yet, he did understand and speak truth. And when God entered into the scene, Job needed to. Job's friends were rebuked by God. And Job offered a sacrifice for them. But Elihu wasn't included in that rebuke. When, when, when God awoke and said, look, who is this out here darkening my counsel with words without knowledge? He's speaking of Elihu in the more immediate context and the entire uh, debate there. But Elihu said something powerful in Job 34, 22, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. No darkness. You can't hide from God. Nothing you've done can be hidden when the books are opened. By their works... The wicked will be judged, and therefore, there are degrees of punishment. Jesus tells us in Luke 12 that there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but Jesus said in Luke twelve forty six through 48 The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required." To whom, what, to whom much was given at the great white throne, much will be required. Men will be judged. Some, some's judgment will be as many stripes, some as few. Jesus said in Matthew 10 that to those that heard His preaching, particularly the Jews, and rejected it, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those that heard the gospel and rejected it. He told the people of Capernaum and Chorazin that it would be more tolerable for Sodom. If Sodom had had the preaching you had, it would have repented. But it'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment. Guys, that makes absolutely no sense apart from degrees of punishment. You know, it's going to be more tolerable for Hitler in the day of judgment than for some of these people marching in the street today. Mark my words. Some more severe, some less severe, but none will escape. None. You know, when I think about the judgment and I think about that little track, there's an image in the Old Testament that I'm reminded of in an obscure passage. Nahum chapter 3 verse 5. Now, I like to actually, if I'm going to give somebody a card, birthday card, anniversary card, a thank you card. You know, I'm not one of these guys that just signs my name and let the card speak for itself. I like to write something. I like people to see that I actually... They mean something to me. So I'll write something personal. And I always like to put a Scripture reference. And I wonder sometimes, do people ever really look this stuff up? You know how people will give you a card and they'll put a Scripture reference? And how many times do we look it up? So, if you ever wonder if a friend or a family member actually looks it up. Here's a little uh, uh, measuring stick to see if they do. Next time you fill out a card and sign your name, put Nahum 3, verse 5. If you don't ever hear from them again, they don't ever comment about it, they didn't look it up. If they looked it up, you're going to hear from them. So that's a great little trick you can play to see if people actually read the verses that you put in their cards, um, it would be Nahum chapter 3, verse 5. But here God gives us an image that I think reflects on this day of judgment. I'm in my Spanish Bible. I can't find them. Whatever. Nahum chapter 3, verse 5. God speaking in the immediate context against Nineveh, and in the greater context against the wicked nations that persecute his people. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now the Bible says, if Christ be for us, who can be against us? What a terrible thing it is if God therefore is against us. Because we're not under Christ. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame. That image there is of God taking men of a skirt pulling it up over her face and showing the world everything hidden under there. Her nakedness and her shame. Guys, that's the great white throne judgment. God's going to pull those skirts up. Nothing is hidden. Everything will be judged. That's a good picture. We're told in chapter 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Guys, the sea and death cough up the bodies. Hell, hades coughs up the souls. The bodies are reunited with the souls. And the dead are vomited up. Their bodies resurrected, not a resurrection from the dead, but a resurrection of the dead and reunited with their souls from hell. This is what Daniel refers to in chapter 12, verse 2 as the resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt. Body and soul. Hell, the county jail. God's holding cell is emptied. Guys, if your loved one's in hell, he hasn't even been judged yet. He's kind of like Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was arrested. Wouldn't be surprised if it's true. It's political too. You can't trust these people. Doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. Because men have turned from God. But Steve Bannon's in the holding cell. He hadn't been judged whether he was a fraudster or not. That's hell right there. The holding cell. But here the holding cells are empty. Every man suddenly standing before God. One moment in hell... The next moment, reunited with the body and standing before the throne, naked and open. Every man, none, escape. And the basis is their works by God's standard of righteousness, His law. At at the judgment of the great white throne, you're not judged whether you accepted Jesus or not. You're judged based on your works and you're condemned. There is no salvation at the great white throne. It's too late for that. It's too late. Then in verses 14 and 15, we see the results of this judgment. Bear with me, guys. I just want to finish this because I'm going to be gone for a while. I don't want to be hanging. I know we wanted to try to start ending at 1230, and I always mess that up. Results of this judgment. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Guys, the not so bad will spend eternity with the most vile of all. The vile and corrupt with money and power will bunk with the vile and corrupt dregs of society and the homeless, drug-addicted bums from off the streets. Altogether. There'll be degrees of punishment. I don't know what that looks like, some worse than others. The Greeks had some interesting imagery in their mythologies about that, but it's certainly not based on any biblical truth. But there are going to be some bunkmates in, in the Lake of Fire that never... People that hated each other are going to end up deserving each other for all eternity. You see, Hitler's going to be down there with Rabbi Schneerson, the so-called Messiah from Brooklyn that everybody thinks is, was a the Messiah. Then he died there in Israel. Margaret Sanger... It's going to be right there with George Floyd. You know, the woman that loved abortion and that thought abortion would be the way to get rid of the blacks in America? The founder of Planned Parenthood that wanted to put abortion clinics in black neighborhoods so we'd get rid of them? Her and George Floyd are going to find out that they're bunkmates. Robert Byrd, the Grand Wizard of the KKK that everybody loved from West Virginia, him and Trayvon Martin are going to have to learn to hang out and get along Tammy Faye Baker is going to have to work things out with Breonna Taylor because they're going to be down there together. And they're going to be with every single person who takes the mark. Every one of them. The mark of the beast. We're told in Revelation that those who worship the beast and take his mark, their torment will ascend forever and ever in the lake of fire. I don't care what Tim LaHaye says and Jerry Jenkins and their little Left Behind series and this idea that you can get the mark but you won't go to hell. That's not what the Bible says. Every person that takes the mark of the beast will be in the lake of fire. Forever and ever. Taking the mark, if you remember my messages on that long ago, is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. There's a lot of people running around today that will 100% take the mark of the beast. Mark my words. And some of them you go to church with, some of them you know and claim to be Christians. So for a lot of these people that have demonstrated that they will run to take the mark based upon their quickness to believe the lies concerning COVID-19, they will take the mark. So their only hope, particularly for those ones who mock the concept of a rapture, A pre-trib rapture, guys like Todd Friel, their only hope is that there is a pre-trib rapture. Because if they're not, there's not, they can't be saved from taking the mark because they're deceived. So you better hope there's a rapture, you people running around here with masks who claim to be Christians. Because that's the only thing that's going to save you. Jesus said when the Son of Man comes, will He even find faith on the earth? And the church of Laodicea, the church that's there at the coming of the rapture, is the dead. It's, it's, the, it's the church that's all about itself. You know, we think of the rapture as a glorious thing, and it is, it is for the believer. But for the church, it's the sin unto death. So it can be spared. That's a side note. But a lot of people out here that have talked a big talk for all these years from behind pulpits. Based on the way they're acting right now, you better believe they'll run to take the mark mm-hmm. if they're allowed to be here. Lake of fire, all into the lake of fire. Cast, it says. Cast. That word there in Greek is an interesting word. It's a strong verb, and it means to throw something, not caring where it falls. Not caring where it falls. And I, I saw this in my own life this week. We have walnut trees. That are kind of a pain this time of year. You can save the walnuts. You can get ink from the walnuts. My, my kids have done homeschool experiments. But it's a big pain. It's a hassle. I would like to cut them down. But this time of year the walnuts are falling in the yard. And I don't like to ride over them with the mower. It's not good for the mower. So we have to go out there and we just pick up the walnuts and toss them in the woods. So I'm picking up walnuts and just tossing them. And I don't care where they fall. As long as it's not in the grass. That's the image right here. The d- death and hell were cast cast not caring where in the lake they fall, but cast into the lake of fire. And guess who gets cast first? If we go on to chapter 21 verse 8. Guess who's in, who's first in line? The cowards, the fearful. They're first in line. Whole lot of cowards running around today in the church that all talked a big talk about trusting God until the little COVID came. And now it's like, oh gosh, we can't trust the Lord. We better shut the churches down. We better hide out in our house. We better wear a mask. We better say yes, massa to the governor. The cowards are the first. What is the lake of fire? In the Old Testament, we have Sheol, the pit hell. But we also have what's called Tophet, the lake of fire. In the New Testament, we have hell, Hades, or Hades. And we have the lake of fire. Jesus likened to Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, where they burned the trash in Jesus' day. The lake of fire appears in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 30, we learn some things about it that we don't, aren't, Described here in, 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 in Revelation 20. In Isaiah chapter 30 beginning with verse 31. We're talk, we're talk to, we're, uh, uh, it, it's references the Assyrian. The Assyrian is a name for the Antichrist. If you go back to Isaiah 10 verse 5. The Assyrian. Even the Antichrist. He has many names. The second most talked about person in the Bible. Aside from the Messiah. The second most prophesied person in the Bible. Besides the seed of the woman is the seed of the serpent. The Antichrist. So when Israel falsely falls for Him, they got no less excuse than they did when the Messiah came. They ought to know who He is, but they won't. At first. But the Assyrian is a a name used for the Antichrist and the context of Isaiah 10 makes that clear. God calls the Assyrian the rod of His anger. In the days when God makes everything right with the nation of Israel. The Assyrian, even the devil and his antichrist are the rod of God's anger. That's a sobering thought. It's not good versus evil. God stands above all that. God governs it all. But here the Assyrian, we're told, and the, um, the context here in Isaiah 30, we see the events of, uh, of, of um, Revelation 19. Going back to verse 25, we see the events of some of the things that will transpire in the millennial kingdom. We see the judgment of Matthew 25 referred to, the sifting of the nations. And at the end of this, the end of, and we're, talk, we're told about the indignation of God's anger. We're, we're told in verse 31, For the, through the voice of the Lord saw the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. And that agrees with Daniel's picture of the little horn. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps, and in the battles and shaking will he fight with it. For Tophet is ordained of old. Yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of a Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Remember what Jesus said? That the fire was prepared for the devil and his angels? The lake of fire is tophet in Hebrew. It was ordained of old. It was prepared for the devil and his superman. And guess what lights it? The breath of God. The lake of fire is lit by the breath of God. Jesus likened it in Greek to Gehenna, the valley of outside of Jerusalem where they would cast the trash and there was always fires burning down there, just burning the trash. The lake of fire. The refuse of Jerusalem. Tophet was also used to refer to that valley. In Tophet, the refuse of the universe is cast and the universe is purged of all evil. Isaiah 30 is interesting because in the context of dark days in the context of God's judgment, He tells the remnant of Israel how they can deal with the darkness and the trouble and how they can be preserved. And I think that applies to us. In verse 15, in the days of judgment, for thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Lord spoke to me this week. In the days we live in, all the chaos and the rioting and the shouting, maybe we need to remember these four words, returning, rest, quietness, and confidence. There is salvation and strength in those things. Mm -hmm. Don't get involved in fights that aren't ours. Take a stand. Do it with confidence. But be content to keep doing what God's called us to do, regardless of what is going on. Our job doesn't change. That's why we're hitting the road. I know a lot of places are closed. I don't know if we're going to find his mall. I don't know any of that. But we're going to go. And we're going to keep doing what we've been told to do. Quietness and confidence. There's something to be learned there if you'll meditate upon that. <coughs> There's another false cliche of evangelical Christianity when it comes to the lake of fire or hell. Oh, hell, you know, it's just separation from God. You're just separated from God. As if you can be free of God and go and party for all eternity. No, the party in hell has been canceled due to the fire, my friends. They've canceled the gala because of the fire. But we're told in Revelation 14 that the lake of fire is not the absence of God. That the lake of fire is in the presence of the Lamb and His angels. Revelation 14, verse 10, we had a glimpse of it. That's where we're told all those who receive the mark will go to the lake of fire. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Guys, the lake of fire is an everlasting testimony in the presence of the lamb and his angels. You can't escape God. God's everywhere. And the burning of the wicked for all eternity will be in his presence. Oh, men won't be begging for forgiveness in Tophet, I can assure you. They'll be cursing God, just like they do when the judgments fall. But they can't escape His presence. You will never escape God, even in the lake of fire. Be careful with those cliches. They're not always true. The lake of fire also has a skylight. It's it's a place of outer darkness, but there's an eternal skylight. It has a skylight. Isaiah 66, the very end of the book. And this is an interesting verse because Jesus actually quotes this verse three times in Mark chapter 9. At least if you're reading a King James. He quotes it three times. If you're reading the original manuscripts, he's quoting it three times. But for whatever reason, they think, oh, we better not say that three times. We better cut it out. So you're reading an ESV or an NASB or whatever, an ABCD, whatever... It's only in there once. But make no mistake, Jesus said it three times. Isaiah 66. The very last verse of the entire book of Isaiah. And they, this is after God creates the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 22. For the new heavens and the new earth. And then he describes life in the new heavens and the new earth in verse 23, verse 24. And they, the people of the new heavens and the new earth, not the millennial kingdom of the present creation, but the new heavens and the new earth, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. There's going to be a window in the lake of fire whereby the burning will be seen as a testimony to those living in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. A reminder of what it is to transgress God. An eternal reminder not only of God's judgment upon sin, but of the grace that was shown in Messiah. An eternal burning and a skylight whereby men will see it from a distance. Jesus, as I said, cited. Isaiah 66, 24, three times in Mark 9, 42-48, talks about those who take advantage of little children like the pedophiles that are in our government, the sex traffickers, the abortion doctors. It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown in the sea. It would be better for them to be pulled out of their abortion clinics by, people, by the people of a local community and hung from a skylight or from a light post than it would be for them to go to hell. And God even said, Jesus even said, if your hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, you'd be better off cutting it off. You're cutting your arm off or plucking your eye out than to go into the lake of fire. Because in the lake of fire, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. I know we're getting late, but we've got a very interesting concept here regarding the lake of fire that I want to show you. And the use of the word worm. Isaiah tells us that in Tophet, in the lake of fire that was ordained for the devil, that's lit by the breath of the Lord, where Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive, and where the dead will go, in Tophet, the worm doesn't die, and the fire is not quenched. There in Mark 9, the word used for worm in the original language refers not like to an earthworm, but kind of like to a maggot. It's a worm that specifically feeds upon dead bodies. In hell, that or in the lake of fire, that worm, that worm won't die. And then, but in, in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, 24, this is where it gets really interesting. The word used in Hebrew in the original language isn't the normal word for worm, rimah, rimah. It's not the normal word. It's a word, tola'ah, that refers specifically to a type of worm that was prevalent in the ancient Near East. The, uh, 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 a crimson colored worm. A red worm. And this, that's why the Hebrew word can also mean crimson. Hebrew is a very contextual language. The context defines it. So the same word that's used for the worm that doesn't die in Isaiah 66 can also refer to the color crimson because it refers to a crimson worm. This worm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correct, is the Coccus Ilicus. It kind of looks like a grub worm. And in the ancient Near East, the dead bodies of these worms were scraped from the trees, and they were dried, or ground into, they were dried and then they were ground into powder, and they were used to dye cloth, and they would dye it scarlet. I think to get one kilogram of dye, crimson dye, you had to have the bodies of about 200,000 of these insects. And that was possible. They were everywhere. This worm, was the powder was also used as a heart medicine in ancient times. And then if if the body of the worm was left on the tree long enough, it would turn white and then fall off. And then the white carcasses were used to make shellac uh, for wood. Very interesting. And so that's the specific worm that Isaiah is referring to here, the tola'ah, the cocosilicus. Now, in Isaiah 14, we have both words for worm used in Hebrew. In Isaiah 14, we have a picture of the devil. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Not Lucifer the morning star, like some of these Modern Bibles mistranslate. Jesus is the bright morning star. Not Lucifer. Son of the morning. Fallen from heaven. That's who we're talking about here. Let's back up one verse. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. And the noise of thy vials. Veals. Veals. The worm is spread under thee. And the worm covers thee. So Lucifer cast out of heaven, cast into hell. The worm is under him and the worms cover him. The great devil, Lucifer, illustrated by the king of Babylon. The worm is spread under him and the worms cover him. The normal word for worm, "rima," that refers could refer to like an earthworm uh, or a worm in the sense of a Dragon or a reptile, often, or a snake. Oh, that word is used also. It can be used to refer. Even in English, a worm was often uh, a term used for a dragon. Um, that's the word that speaks about what um, is spread under Lucifer, but what covers him are these crimson worms, the worms that die not in hell. Remember, the devil, we learned in Revelation, is a great red dragon. He's a great red worm. In Revelation 12, the serpent, we've known all along who he is, but the first time in Revelation, in the Bible, it's Revelation 12, where the serpent in the garden is specifically identified as Satan. We talked about that. Hell, or the lake of fire in its final state. Lucifer, the great red dragon, that worm, Covered in a crawling pile of red maggots. The wicked dead, given a body just like their dragon father, just like their serpent father, a red serpent, a crimson worm in its lowest form. You know, Charles Darwin talked about what were called vestigial organs on the human body, organs that he claimed didn't really serve a purpose. They're just left over from man's previous state as a monkey or a, going all the way back to a worm or a, a, a speck of dust floating around in palm scum. The bot, evolution teaches that dirt plus water plus time equals advanced living creatures. Evolution is a farce, and yet it's called as fact. But we have organs like our tailbone, our appendix, our earlobes, Even our tonsils that the evolutionists would say, well, it really doesn't serve a purpose because you can live without it or whatever. Actually, these things do serve purposes. And just because you can live without something doesn't mean it has no purpose. I can live without an iPhone, but it certainly has a purpose. I can live without an arm, but it has a purpose. But I think it's funny because Darwin said these vestigial organs are left over. They point back. To what man used to be. I'd say no. These vestigial organs. that They do have a purpose I would confess. But that kind of point to a beast or an animal. They don't point back to anything. They point forward. You know God's given us what points forward to our final state. If we enter into judgment. Not what man was but what man will be the animal nature he will get in the lake of fire where his worm doesn't die. Remember in Psalm 49, men that perish in the judgment are like the beast. Remember we talked about man claims he came from beasts, he came from monkeys, so a beast will rule over him in the tribulation. And a beast he will be in the lake of fire. The worm will not die. A festering pile of maggots That covers the great maggot himself. That's the imagery I see. I don't understand what all that exactly means. But it's a ghastly scene. The most horrendous, grisly, and harrowing scene in all of Scripture. The lake of fire. Where the worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. Jesus knew exactly what the caucus elicus was when he quoted that passage. He knew exactly what Isaiah was talking about and he warned the people three times. Jesus preached more on the lake of fire than he did on heaven. But I want you to consider a moment the same worm, the same caucus elicus that cast a ghastly image in Isaiah 66, Mark 9, Isaiah 14. Cross-referencing here with Revelation 20. It's also a beautiful picture because that's not the only place we see the worm. That same crimson worm can be found in one of the greatest messianic psalms of the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 22. The crucifixion and sacrifice of our Lord, the Messiah, on the cross. Whose feet and hands were pierced and who yet rose up from the grave. Psalm 24, the great prophetic passage of the crucifixion of the Messiah... Jesus or the Messiah, it is said in verse 6, I am a worm and no longer a man. Christ on the cross was as a worm and no longer a man, beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable. And the word there in Psalm 22 is the same crimson worm that's used in Isaiah 66 to discover, to, to, to reveal to us what hell or the lake of fire is. You see, this interesting red worm, this grub worm, what it does is it attaches itself to a tree or a fence post or a stick of some sort. And it'll stick so hard and fast to these surfaces that you can't take it off. You can't pull it off like you can a slug or a caterpillar without tearing the body and killing it. So it fastens itself, this this crimson-colored worm, and then it lays eggs under the shell and the larvae when they are hatched are protected under this crimson shell and they feed on the living body of the mother until she dies and then when she dies because she's fed her larvae her offspring she actually oozes a crimson red dye that stains the wood to which she was attached And it stains her offspring who will be colored scarlet all their days. After three days, to get the dye, they would have to get these shells before about three days because it would turn white. And so after about three days, the mother's shell loses the crimson color and it turns a wax white and falls to the ground like a piece of snow. And that was used for making shellac. And then what's left on the tree is a a crimson stain. That doesn't go away. You know, when I think about that and I think about how Messiah was a worm and no longer a man, I'm reminded of what John said The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Paul told the elders at Ephesus feed the flock of God. Don't lie to them, don't don't deceive them with the fear porn. Feed the flock of God, (coughs) excuse me, which He, God, has purchased with His own blood. And then in one of the greatest scenes in all of Scripture, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the church is in heaven before the opening of the seals and the start of the tribulation. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Not them. It doesn't say them in the original language. Them is not here like the modern verse. Us. There is no debate on the manuscript evidence here. Us to God. By thy blood. Out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And has made us <clears throat> Unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the church in heaven before the first seal is opened by the blood of Messiah. Guys, Christ the Messiah was a worm on the tree, so we don't have to be a worm in the lake of fire. The Messiah was a worm and no longer a man so that we don't have to be the worm that dieth not where the fire is not quenched. So that we don't have to be a festering pile of maggots crawling on our devil father, whatever that means for all eternity, in Tophet which was ordained of old for the devil and his angels. Christ was a worm who covers us with his blood if we will receive it. Just like that worm, that red worm, covers her offspring and stains them with her blood and thereby stains the tree. It's no accident that's the word that was used in Psalm 22 by the, by the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That was a specific species of worm. When the Bible says that creation testifies of God and of His glory, it's everywhere. The dogwood tree, the sand dollar, those things are there. We mock at those things and laugh at them. But no man has an excuse. Creation declares the glories of God time and time again. Jesus is our only escape to God. That is the thousands and thousands that minister to God at the great white throne in Daniel 7. And He's the only escape from God, the 10,000 times 10,000 who will stand before Him. When we think about this scene, the basis of this judgment in Revelation 20, when we think about the results of it, when we think of the Old Testament imagery that goes with it, when we think of how this will be an eternal reminder of God's judgment on sin, when we see all of this thing All of these things. And then we consider how we can be saved from it by the blood of Messiah who was a worm for us on a tree. Guys, when a man gets saved, the greatest and most powerful men in all the world suddenly become mighty commonplace. All of these people out here prophesying and teaching all these things we need to do to be great again as a country and all about the virus and... The Dr. Fauci's and the lady with the scarf, I don't even know her name, I don't care. You know, the Joe Biden who wants to fix everything, that woman that's running, I don't even remember her name, don't care. All of these people are suddenly pretty commonplace when you think about the great white throne. When you get saved, I don't care where you came from, I don't care what your story is, when you get saved, all the great men of this world are suddenly pretty common. Because they're all going to answer to the God of creation at that throne if they're not converted. There's a couple other elements of the lake of fire that are interesting. I don't want to get into them too much. The time is short. The lake of fire is not a place where the wicked are annihilated out of existence. That's a false teaching. It's a false teaching. It's embraced by people that just don't want to deal with the fact that their loved ones are going to be in the lake of fire. They don't want to deal with it. So, oh, you know, God's just going to destroy him. Just because the word destruction is used a couple times. Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment. There's no way that can include annihilation. This is an eternal death, an eternal punishment. It's also a dark place. Dark. Jude refers to it as the blackness, a corner where the blackness of darkness abides forever. Forever. Think how can the lake of fire be fiery and be black and dark? Guys, the hot the hotter the flame, the less color it has. The white flame is a hotter flame than an orange or a yellow flame. You know, the, the heat of the lake of fire is so far beyond what we're able to create in this life. It's ignited by the breath of God that's far hotter than any sun. Any white dwarf or any red giant or any supernova. So hot that it doesn't even have a color. That's how it can be dark and be a flaming place of flaming fire. As a flame gets hotter, it loses its color. We can't make a clear flame, but the breath of God can. Darkness and fire at the same time. We often, often, there was a cave I used to like to explore up in Virginia. It's actually still there. Um, I inquired about it recently, but I used to take people up there, and we'd crawl back in there. You'd have to crawl in there. It wasn't wasn't a tourist place. And there were bats, and it was a pretty freaky place. It was many years ago, but we'd always go back in there, and I'd make everybody turn the lights off because I wanted them to see what a darkness that can be felt is, where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And we would often talk about hell in that environment. Outer darkness. Guys, this is a ghastly scene. I preach it to you not to scare you. I preach it to you because it's the truth. And we need to know. It's the ghastliest of scenes here in Revelation 20 as we finish. But, take heart. Because the one who sits on the throne, this ghastly scene very quickly is going to become one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. And what we've got left in Revelation is beautiful. It's what we have to look forward to. And it's the same One who sits on the throne. If you go down to chapter 21, verse 5, He that sat upon the throne, this is the One on the great white throne that cast the dead into hell. He that sits upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write these words. John was told to write this stuff down. And then he that sits on the throne says, It is done. After the wicked dead are cast into the lake of fire, it is done. And then that one on the throne preaches to John. He gives him a message that he's to deliver to the churches. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto Him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So after the scene of hell, the one that sits on the throne gives an invitation. You can escape this by means of a free gift. The water of life freely. This distinguishes the gospel from every single man-made religion All the way back to the day of Cain. It's free. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be their God. And he shall be my son. But be warned. The fearful. The cowards. The unbelieving. The abominable. The murderers. The whoremongers. And sorcerers. And idolaters. And all liars. Shall have their part in the lake which burned with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. But blessed is He that has no part in the second death. Blessed is He that has His part in the first resurrection. So when I'm back with you next time, maybe before the end of the year, we're going to look at the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to start with the bride, the Lamb's wife, the eternal city of Jerusalem, and the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, all of this is going to pass away. And in Jesus Christ, we know this. So what manner of person should we be? Knowing it's all going to be dissolved. It means we're not grasping onto anything. If there's one thing in this life we as Christians in light of all this should grasp to. One thing alone. It's this book. Grasp the book. But we'd be willing to let go of the rest of it. Because it's all going to be dissolved. But one day we wait for new heavens and a new earth. Peter says, whereby dwelleth Righteousness. Guys, in Jesus Christ, who was a worm on a tree, we can be a part of that new heavens and that new earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had in your word. The hour is long. But sometimes it's worth preaching. Paul preached all night and a man fell out of the window asleep and should have died, but he was preserved. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remind us of these eternal truths daily so that we wouldn't cling to the Lord and that we would be motivated to go out and preach the gospel so that those we know can escape this judgment that's coming. Lord, bless the food that's been prepared. Pray for those that aren't amongst us. Walk with them today. And Lord, bless our fellowship. Lord, this fellowship is is a way that in quietness and confidence we can endure the days of trouble and stand firm on Your Word. Thank You that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law that we can escape the condemnation of the law. Thank You, Lord, that Jesus Christ was a worm that stained a tree with His blood so that we don't have to be in the place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. We praise You, Him who is worthy to sit on the throne and worthy to take the scroll. For You have redeemed us, Lord. You've also redeemed those from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And we long for that day when we can stand before Your throne, red, yellow, black, and white, Jew and Gentile, and praise You without regard for race, without regard for social status, without regard for social justice, but with regard for God's eternal truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.